Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're talking about the Clark Ashton Smith story, The Door to Saturn. This was a story originally published in the pulp magazine Strange Tales in 1932 as part of its uh, first batch of stories. This was a new magazine this year. Yeah, this is a strange story. I'm not not quite sure how we're going to approach it and talk about it, but we'll we'll do the best we can. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a lot going on here, but it doesn't really amount to all that much. Uh, the plot's a little bit of a mess, but it should be enjoyable to go through and, and see how Clark Ashton Smith put this world together. I want to take a minute and talk about Glenn's story, uh, An Idle Dream Quite Gone Now. This is a ghost story, and you can find it in the anthology of supernatural horror short stories available on Amazon. This is also available at Barnes & Noble and a lot of bookstores. It's by uh, Flame Tree Press, and they do a lot of awesome stuff for writers like Glenn and myself and other up-and-coming weird fiction writers. What they do is they collect classic weird fiction stories, so there's a, a big audience built in, and then they add in new stories uh, by writers like Glenn. And so Glenn's story in this edition comes right after Lovecraft's story, The Shunned House. And it's awesome. It really gives an opportunity for new voices to be heard in the weird fiction world. Yeah, when I saw my name next to H.P. Lovecraft's in the table of contents, I just wept because there were no more worlds left to conquer. I didn't know what to do with my life after that. And really, it is an honor to be included in that collection. It's a collection that also has stories by Edgar Allan Poe, Arthur Conan Doyle, M.R. James, William Hope Hodgson, all writers we've covered on this show, or will, I guess, in the case of Arthur Conan Doyle. And I would really love for people to check that out. And and we do have a forum dedicated to our own original fiction on the Clay Temple website. So I would also love to hear what people think, even if it's critical. I can take it. So... Last time, as you've alluded to already, Brandon, I said that I had fond memories of reading this story in high school, but I'm not sure that it really holds up. And uh, I think that's something we'll talk about in our discussion. It's really probably going to be our main discussion topic. But as you say, Brandon, it is still an interesting story. Uh, and, And I think in this case, it's interesting in that it's actually our first story in what is commonly called the Cthulhu mythos. And I'll have some more to say about that as we go. But I think let's just get straight into it. So Brandon, take us away. Morgai, the high priest of the goddess Yunda, along with twelve of his best underlings, arrive at the house of Iban the heretic in the morning twilight to arrest him by surprise. They've even gone through the trouble of creating a writ of arrest made of human skin, covered in flame-etched runes. But they run into a problem. Iban is nowhere to be found in his house of black nice. He doesn't seem to care that Morgai and his crew have traveled through the night to get there. Morgai, though, is especially disappointed. He mutters curses, even as the topmost room of Iban's house reveals that Iban is nowhere to be found. Iban is Morgai's main wizard rival on Mu Tulan, the ultimate peninsula of the Hyperborean continent. Iban is a devotee of the discredited heathen god Zodakwa and draws his magic from the from his unlawful affiliation with his dark deity. Zodakwa is an old god whose secrets are older than man and whose knowledge could only come from outlying planets coeval with night and chaos. Iban's tower is five stories two of which are underground, and the search for Iban has been thorough. Even Iban's servants have been tortured, but they don't know where their master has gone. Morgai has removed flagstones beneath an image of the fur-covered bat-like Zothakwa, but there is nothing to show where Iban has fled to. So Morgai returns to the top of the tower to examine everything more closely. Iban's top room contained materials that you'd find in most wizards' workrooms, I suppose. On each of the five walls hangs a parchment painting. Each painting appears to be the work of some aboriginal race and displays blasphemous and repellent themes and images. Zothakwa's presence can be found in each of them. Morgai tears them from the walls to see if Iban somehow is hiding behind the paintings, maybe levitating so his shoes 
uh, won't reveal his hiding place. <laughs> Iban, though, is not hiding behind a painting. The Morgai does uncover a strange wall panel, high up above the writing table. It contains an oval-shaped inlay of reddish metal that displays strange properties. Morgai stands on the writing table and pounds the panel. It produces both an extremely hot and cold sensation, and then it swings open. But the panel doesn't open to our own skies. Indeed, there are no skies or seas to be seen beyond the panel. Only something that could be dreamt of in a most outrageous nightmare. And Morgai, being on a kind of holy mission, decides to go through the opening to check out what lies beyond. And he tells his underlings to wait behind. This is the end of the first chapter of five of The Door to Saturn. Yeah, this is one of these classic pulp magazine weird fiction moves to have a 15-page story have chapter breaks at lens, I guess, you know, some sort of gravitas to it. And this first chapter is going to turn out to really just be a prologue. And, you know, it has some real interesting features uh, about it. Uh, for one, Smith is doing a lot to build up this this world, this world of Hyperborea, even though that's not actually the world where this story is going to take place, right? He's he's really trying to get us to to visualize what this world looks like, to experience it uh, the, in a sensory way. So he's you know kind of over describing what the the buildings look like, what the paintings look like, and what they're made of, and so on. It's this real uh, rich and thick uh, description. I'm not sure that it works very well. We will talk about that in the the discussion. But also, as I said in the intro, this is a, a mythos story, and that is made clear right here in this first section. Uh, Zothakwa is uh, an invention of Clark Ashton Smith's, though we usually see this name rendered not as Zothakwa, but as Sothagwa. Uh, just, a, just a small spelling change here, though you, you, you know, put a Z on something and it looks infinitely cooler all the time. It's got Zs and Qs, right, instead of a T and, and Gs. And Lovecraft really liked this god, Sothagwa, and so he put him in two of his own stories. Uh, one of them is uh, the, the Mound, which was one of his ghost-written pieces, uh, and then also The Whisperer in Darkness, which is, of course, one of his masterpieces, one of his real big, important uh, novellas and, and a real central piece in uh, the Cthulhu mythos itself. And, and since that time, there have been a number of other writers who have appropriated Sathagwa in their works. And even as recently as about 15 years ago, uh, Robert M. Price edited an anthology that was totally devoted to Sathagwa with uh, a handful of Smith stories. And I think maybe also a Lovecraft story might have been The Whisperer in Darkness, and then a bunch of, of work by, by newer writers. Uh, that might be something we get our hands on at some point and, and take a look at some of those. But Sathagwa is not the only connection that we've got here to other Weird Tales writers. Uh, this story, or at least this first section of it, takes place in Hyperborea, which, of course, sounds an awful lot like Hyborea, which is Robert E. Howard's Conan setting, which we've covered a little bit of over on Patreon. And, and this setting, Hyperborea, Smith's setting, came first, which is to say that Howard was riffing on Smith's idea when he decided to set Conan in an imaginary prehistoric Earth. That's what Smith is doing here. Uh, we don't really learn that much about it in this story, but in some of the others, we come to know that this is Antarctica before it freezes over, which is an idea that we see you know, all the time in these pulp stories. It's an idea we've seen Gene Wolfe riffing on as well. And even though Howard did a lot more with his setting than Smith did with this one, there are still about a dozen Smith stories that are set here in Hyperborea. This is actually the fourth of them. And I guess really, as we'll see in the next section, right, it's only barely one of them because it's only this one section of the five that takes place here. Right. I mean, we do get a, a minor epilogue at the very end that does talk about the Ice Age and hints us into the the fact that this is a continent that is the, the, the Arctic before it freezes over. The utility of setting this story on Earth and introducing Zodakwa this early on is really opaque to me. It's not clear exactly why Smith is setting the story up this way. And I think we'll see as the structure goes on that, I don't know, he's doing a bit of a Gulliver's Travels riff, which I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure quite works with the way he's setting up this kind of dueling wizard plot. And we do learn more about Ibon at the, in the opening of chapter two. 
we learned that Ibon absolutely really, really worshipped Zothakwa and that Zothakwa is just a gross type of god. Ibon collected all sorts of old lore about Zothakwa and he followed it to its roots. He cultivated an acquaintance with Zothakwa himself who bestowed upon Ibon certain esoteric secrets and other bits of info about the practice of the black arts. Zothakwa also told Ibon about himself about Zothakwa. He had come to Earth from the planet Sikranash, which is also known as Saturn to us. But even that was just a way station for Zothakwa's other worldly and interdimensional travels. As Iban proved his faithfulness to Zothakwa over the years, Zothakwa gifted Iban a the panel, the door to Saturn that we saw Morgai go into. And we learn that if it's opened, it transports the one who has opened it into Saturn. But there is a catch. Zothakwa tells Ibon that the trip to Saturn should not be taken lightly because it's almost definitely a one-way trip. And I bet at this point, more guy wishes he would have gotten that briefing before <laughs> traveling through this wall panel. Uh, Zothakwa also lets Ibon know that some of his relatives are still worshipped on Sikranash. And gave him the name of one to use as a password or really like a name of power if he should ever need to use it. But I think we'll see as this story unfolds that uh, uh, Zothakwa has some bad info regarding the way the cultures on Saturn have changed since he's left. Iban had never really planned on using the panel uh, until Zothakwa, who was quietly keeping tabs on him and all the sort of underground and dark things that take place in Mutulan, uh, until Zothakwa warned Iban that Morgai and his underlings were coming to get him. So Iban decided it was time to try out the panel. He got some food together. He said goodbye to Zothakwa, however they say goodbye to each other, and he jumps through the panel. The world on the other side, the world of Saturn, did not immediately appeal to Iban, but he really preferred the risk of Saturn to that of the inquisitorial cells of worshippers of the goddess Yunda. And so, as Iban stepped through the panel, he was in another world, with Mutulan disappearing behind him. And I, I want to read the description here of Saturn that Smith writes. One, because it'll give our listeners a sense of the prose that Clark Ashton Smith is writing with, but also I think it's, I don't know, it's a pretty good description uh, the, the language is a little intense of another planet, an alien planet. Smith writes this. He was standing on a long declivity of ashen soil, down which a sluggish stream that was not water, but some liquescent metal resembling mercury, ran from tremendous unscalable shoulders and horns of the mountain heights above to debauch in a hill-surrounded lake of the same liquid. The slope beneath him was lined with rows of peculiar objects, and he could not make up his mind whether they were trees, mineral forms, or animal organisms, since they appeared to combine certain characteristics of all these. This preternatural landscape was appallingly distinct in every detail, under a greenish-black sky that was overarched from end to end with a triple cyclopean ring of dazzling luminosity. The air was cold, and Iban did not care for its sulfurescent odor or the odd puckery sensation it left in his nostrils and lungs. And when he took a few steps on the unattractive-looking soil, he found that it had the disconcerting friability of ashes that have dried once more after being wetted with rain. Right. Saturn is a really interesting landscape, though. I don't think it's Smith's best descriptive writing. In fact, it's well below the quality of even his average pro style. And I think right off the bat, if you're using unattractive looking as an adjective, as a descriptor, something has gone wrong with your your sentence, right? So even though there are some good bits to this description, he's clearly just not firing on all cylinders here. But I do love the liquid metal stream and the the objects that are some combination of animal, mineral, and, and vegetable. That's all very cool. And I also love how quaint this idea of Saturn is, right? There's no concern here about gravity or pressure or atmosphere. I mean, other than to say that it smells a little bit, right? It's other otherwise just conceived of as being basically the exact same as Earth. It just looks a little different, smells a little different, and has different types of 
uh, of creatures walking around it. Yeah, reading this description really reminded me of C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, of the way C.S. Lewis describes other planets. And we're going to see some of these odd, some odd creatures and beings on these that I think C.S. Lewis was really influenced by the way Clark Ashton Smith wrote about other planets and these, this kind of notion of space travel and didn't concern himself with the science fiction-y, with like the hard science fiction elements of space travel, but really was approaching it from a poetic viewpoint, which Clark Ashton Smith is. You're absolutely right to point out that these are some atrocious sentences, but I think it's uh, I think it's the best example of the general prose in the story and how Smith is describing this planet. It's a setting you can kind of sink your teeth into, but it, the the prose is just so so ugly. There's even an epistolary exchange between Smith and Lovecraft on the topic of whether or not this story is well written that we'll we'll take a small look at in the discussion. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait. Well, Ibon is on Saturn, and it doesn't take long for him to come across some sort of monstrous figure type thing. This monster has short legs and elongated arms and a round, sleepy-looking head that is pendulous from its spherical body. Ibon studies the creature for a little while because, you know, maybe he could be in danger. Uh, he doesn't know. And determines that the creature shares a kind of likeness with Zothakwa. And that it's probably one of Zothakwa's relatives, like Zothakwa told him. The creature drinks from a liquid metal lake as Ibon tries to remember the name that Zothakwa gave him, that word of power. Finally, Ibon remembers and he speaks the name. The monster... The creature recognizes the word, though Ibon realizes that his pronunciation is probably pretty bad. So in order to try to stay on the monster's good side, he just repeats Zothakwa three times. The monster opens its mouth and says a series of unpronounceable words to Ibon. Then the monster leaves and Morgai arrives Morgai tries to arrest Ibon at this point, and he draws his weapon. And Ibon points out the absurdity of the situation to Morgai. They are on Psychronosh, and Yunda and the temples on Mutulan hold no sway here. Morgai accuses Ibon of entrapping him in some sort of sorcery, but Ibon just ignores Morgai at this point and says that the monster he was talking to gave him a quest or a mission, along with you know, special words to deliver and indicated a direction that they should go in. And since Morgai is already here, hey, why not come along? Who knows? It might be fun. Morgai agrees and they head off. That's chapter two. Right. And this is actually now finally the real plot of the, the story, right? The, 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 this is really act one of this story. So it, it becomes immediately clear that chapter one was really just a, a prologue to this that probably works a lot better if you're already familiar with this setting, and, and maybe especially if you're already familiar with these characters. But the story's not really doing that work for us. But I'm at this point now interested in the adventure that they're going to go have. Before we get to that, though, I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about the actual door to Saturn. That is the title of this story, because there's a lot going on with this. I guess, you know, based on Smith's description of this, I guess what it does is create a wormhole that connects to Saturn. And, and Smith describes this as using a different dimension to create a kind of shortcut. But the door itself, which creates the shortcut, or, or at least gives access to the shortcut, I guess, is made of material from another universe. It's not another dimension, it's another universe. So here in this story, Smith is throwing a lot of early sci-fi concepts at the wall here in, in something that I think is probably akin to a Jackson Pollock painting. Uh, we've got aliens on Saturn. We've got gods on Saturn. We've got multiple universes. And we've also got multiple dimensions. And that's all just in two paragraphs, right? He's just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what, what comes of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is kind of a mess. And we're going to see that he he is not really able to clean up some of this mess that he's created. Uh, Zothaqua becomes entirely inconsequential as the story continues. And it's and as I said, it's really unclear why we're even using Sothaqua for this story. You know, there, there's a kind of uh, 
trick you learn from writing really bad stories regularly when you're learning how to write in general <laughs> that if you need two characters to do the same function you need to get rid of one of the characters and that's a little bit of what is going on here there is there are endless duplicates of functionality going all over this story and this kind of road trip that Morgai and Iben go on isn't even about them becoming friends or anything like that or overcoming obstacles their quest isn't about their own journey, as we'll see. Right. Let's let's go on this road trip with these guys now. Right. Well, Iban and Morgai are on their way. And Morgai, being an inquisitor in every sense of the word, starts asking questions. He wants to know who that monster was and what exactly the mission they are on is about. The monster, explains Iban, is the paternal uncle of Zothakwa. And this is another indication here that Iban is is kind of a, a master of spinning a web here, a story, because he also is just trying to stay one step ahead of more guys need to be holy and uh, go on a holy war. And, and that's really what he's doing. He He's an unreliable narrator here, which is very strange. There's no real indication that this monster is actually the paternal uncle of Sothakwa. He doesn't even know what the monster said. He is clearly lying, but he's just trying to stay alive uh, and not be killed by Morgai. And that, that's even more evident in the way that Iban refuses to share what the mission is. He just is playing it close to his chest. It's because he doesn't know. So the two wizards travel for a little, then they eat a little bit of the uh, rations that Iban brought with him, because they don't really know how to get food on Saturn, and they continue on. Soon, they run into another monster, and Morgai wants to know here if it's another of the quote-unquote gods that Iban has gotten his mission from. Iban knows that it's not, but he's got to maintain his reputation as a powerful sorcerer who understands Saturn better than Morgai. So he goes towards the beast and yells out the name that Zothakwa had given him. And at the same time, he takes the sword that Morgai brought with him and he stabs the beast between the plates of mail that cover it, prodding the beast along. So the beast moves along this sort of pseudo road that they're walking on and they follow it. After a little while longer, they encounter something new. The creature that they had been goading along is cowering before beings who are about human sized and These beings are bipeds, and they're strange in the sense that their heads and their, like, midsection have been combined into a strange, singular, torso-like thing. And these beings wear no clothes, but they're clearly an intelligent species. So Iban approaches them and says his magic words, and the intelligent beings drop their primitive weapons and bow before Iban. And Iban tells Morgai that his mission has been completed. That's chapter three. We don't really get a whole lot of characterization of either Iban or Morgai. We don't really know anything about them or what motivates them other than that they're rival sorcerers. And neither of them seems concerned that they can't get back to Earth either. Like, this is just not something that's on their mind. I'll have some questions about character motive in the discussion. But even without all of that, there is something of a blooming buddy cop story here or you know, a buddy road trip story, I guess is probably better to say. All of their bickering is going to have to lead to some hilarious bonding moment in the end. And, and maybe it will. Maybe if Bob Hope and Bing Crosby were playing these characters in the <laughs> <laughs> MGM Universal adaptation of Clark Ashton Smith's the door to Saturn, that would be that would be something to see. That is an alternate universe I want to go live in <laughs> as soon as possible. Me too. Well, we're at chapter four here, and chapter four starts with a time jump. Morgai and Iban have been the honored guests of the Torso Bipeds, who are actually known as Blemfroims uh, on Saturn. Because of Iban's natural gift for languages, he's able to learn about the Blemfroims, The monster that they goaded along on the road and followed to their first encounter with these aliens was basically like a cow. And the phrase he shouted out, given to him by the old god, didn't mean anything to anybody who was present when he yelled it out. The Blemfoims were just grateful that their animal was returned home safely. And we learn that the reason why that phrase didn't mean anything to the Blemfoims is that they have given really up 
they've really given up on religion as a culture. But we also learn that the neighboring people still worship the old gods, and maybe they could give Ibon the meaning of the phrase at some point if the story moves in that direction. What Clark Ashton Smith does here is really just give us a lot of information about the Blemfoims, and so we just learn about their culture. They eat fungus primarily, and they're a two-gendered species, but only one female of a generation is chosen to be a mother, and what everybody else does is spend all their time feeding this national mother until she's big enough and sturdy enough and stout enough to give birth to a whole generation of Blemfoims. And fortunately for Morgai and Ibon, this national mother is ready to mate. But we're going to drop that for just a second because there's more to learn about the Blemfoims. And this is really the way the story is structured here. The Blemfoims were not always headless. And they feel kind of shabby about having evolved to the point where they've lost their heads. So I'm sure you can really see where this is going. The Blemfoims let Morgai and Ibon know that they have selected them to be the fathers of the next generation of Blemfoims because they want to see if they can introduce heads back into the gene pool. Morgai and Ibon, though, are not super keen on this society. They feel pretty out of place in it because all they're valued for is the fact that they have heads instead of just torsos, not for their like cool wizardry and magic and stuff. But they don't want to be rude to their hosts, so they ask some important questions like, hey, what's going to happen to us if we fulfill our duties in mating with the mother? And the Blemfoims explain that they will be served to the national mother in the form of ragu and other culinary preparations. <laughs> It's absurd. Ibon is a diplomat. He's, I guess, ostensibly the hero of the story, though it's hard to really determine if if there is one in fact. Uh, But Ibon formally accepts the arrangements. And as soon as he and Morgai are out of earshot, he tells Morgai that perhaps the god, perhaps the old god who has given him the message has made a mistake in sending them to the Blemfoims. And they should find a people more worthy of receiving the communication that Ibon has traveled with. Morgai, of course, agrees here. And because the Blemfoims are simple folk, they just simply let Ibon and Morgai walk out of the city without any trouble. So Ibon and Morgai escape, and they move towards the country of the Yadims. Now, the Yadims are the people who worship the ancient gods and would be able to decode the message actually given to Ibon. So Ibon and Morgai travel again. They do some treacherous climbing of a mountain and walking, and they get tired, and they come down the other side of the mountain a little bit. And they both have a lot of stress about being caught, and they dream about that stress, and it keeps them motivated. And eventually, they come across the country of the Yadims. The mushrooms are bigger here in this country, and it's a more fertile area than the Blemfoim area. And as Ibon and Morgai are overlooking the land and the, the beautiful, fertile cities of the Yadims uh, and the giant mushrooms, they get caught up in an avalanche, and that just takes them down the rest of the mountain. That's the end of chapter four. Chapter four is really a, a story that is a, a classic trope of the 19th century adventure story in which European explorers are at first regarded as revered and, and magical by the, the natives they're encountering, only to later be put in jeopardy through a complete misunderstanding of the situation as well as a complete misunderstanding of the, the natives' culture. It's played for laughs here with the the joke being that these dudes are going to have to have sex with an ugly woman and then be eaten by her. And this is an interesting feature of the story, and especially in terms of its place in the the literary history of the adventure story. So we'll get into that as well. But I'm also fascinated by the, the motivation of the Blemfroims, which, by the way, is an incredibly difficult word to say. You had to say it about a dozen times, and I, I'm impressed. Clark Ashton Smith did not write this story to be read aloud by uh, audiobook narrators or to be discussed by podcasters. So good on you. Uh, but I am fascinated by what motivates these guys in the, the first place. They feel a deep eugenic sorrow, which is a, a great phrase. Uh, they feel this this deep eugenic sorrow that their faces are in their, their chests, uh, you know, that they don't have heads, I guess. But it's just not clear to me why this is something they want. Or, or why they would have sorrow 
over it, right? And I'm also not sure they actually know how genetics works if they think they could just get these people from a totally different species to mate with their uh, one reproducing female. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I I get where they're coming from. I mean, this is kind of the the Gulliver's Travels bit of the story here, where we have this weird culture, the people that don't have heads, so they're clearly intelligent. Uh, It's it's Gulliver's Travels without the satire. And they have rejected, like, all spirituality and religion and focused on a rational, building a rational society. But they don't really have anything to do except to feed the national mother. So... The only tradition they have that's meaningful is this old history of them once having heads and they're trying to get them back. So maybe Clark Ashton Smith is doing something here where he's attempting satire, looking at rational societies without traditions or that ignore traditions and uh, how silly they can become going down a certain path. But it just doesn't quite land for me. I see the humor in it. But boy, it just misses the mark a little bit for me. Yeah, none of it is well developed enough. Uh, we, you know, we just don't spend enough time on any of it, and the and the point of view is not right for satire for social critique because we are getting so much emphasis on and actually really kind of the wonder of this place, even rather than the the weirdness of this place, and so it just doesn't work with for what he's trying to to accomplish. But we do still actually have to meet the Yadim, and there might be something going on there that will uh, will hammer home this this idea of satire here. Perhaps. Well, we're in chapter five, as you said, Glenn, and it picks up without a time jump, right at the end of chapter four. So Iban and Morgai are trying to extricate themselves from the avalanche, and the avalanche has drawn the attention of some of the Yadims, and they're curious about what's happened with the avalanche and the strange people emerging from it. So the Yadims come over, and Iban tells them that he has a message to bring them from the old god. He speaks the words that the god has given him. And the Yadims respond by evacuating the town and moving to a new area about a day's march away. These people are absolutely, evidently, and clearly worshippers of the old god that Iban first came across on Saturn. After building the new town, Iban and Morgai are installed as priests in the new temple of the old god. And... Now they're now we're going to learn some information about this whole mission and message. Iban finally learns that the secret message that he was given by the old god simply meant be on your way. And the god had addressed it to Iban as a curt dismissal. But because the two wizards came riding into Yadim on an avalanche, the Yadims who worship the old god took it as a message to relocate so they don't get buried in an avalanche that could come down the mountain. All right, this is now kind of the wrap-up of the story here. The ending, the happy ever after, if we, if we really get one here. The wizards are glad because they feel much more appreciated for their wizarding skills and magic and stuff uh, among the Yadims. Iban is especially happy with the situation, but Morgai is upset that he's not really able to create any religious uh, rifts and factions in the religion of the Yadims because there's not enough gods to worship on this planet and he can't persecute anybody for being a heretic. So he finds some solace in the fungus wine that the Yadims make and the two wizards are able to live out the rest of their days in relative peace. Back on Earth... We learned that Morgai's underlings waited for a few days at Iban's tower, and when no one returned from the panel, a successor was chosen to replace Morgai. But the worship of Yunda declined overall because it was believed that Iban's god, Zothakwa, was just way more powerful. And so there was a big revival of Zothakwa worship throughout Muthulan in the last centuries before the onset of the Great Ice Age. The end. Yeah, so I, I guess these guys are just stuck on Saturn, which is not at all how I was expecting this story to, to end. But I guess they're also largely happy, though that is hard to imagine, settling down into this life that they settle down into and feeling happy and, and just totally fine to be stuck on Saturn. In the end, again, of course, right, the whole motivation for their adventure on Saturn was a big misunderstanding. It's it's another joke. 
But the story does have this happy ending because these two human dudes are, are able to settle down in this new community, which they're really able to do because Ibon is regarded as a type of prophet. And so, again, this is kind of a trope of this adventure story, especially this 18th and 19th century ad- adventure story. And this is a this is a genre of literature, Brandon, that I know you have a real interest in. So I just wanted to start off the discussion by prompting you to talk a little bit about how you see this story fitting into that tradition. Uh, where does it fit in that tradition? How is Smith or what is Smith doing that riffs on the tropes, uh, riffs on the uh, approaches and the, the, the attitudes of, of that type of story? And how do you, and how successful do you think he is in playing with that genre? So the first thing I really think of in reading this story and putting it in this kind of 19th century adventure fiction or colonial British fiction is really what we're talking about here uh, with the adventure tinge to it is Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King, which is about two men who go to a who go to Afghanistan and return with tales about how they were treated as kings in that place and it's their travels and their liars and i think that this is smith's own attempt to tell the man who would be king in a science fiction story and he has to do things that kipling doesn't have to do he has to create a world where he can have wizards go and be prophets instead of kings and he has to create these cultural misunderstandings by inventing new alien cultures because he's selling it to a weird tales magazine. So what you get is this sort of, you know, road trip story, these, the fish out of water tale, uh, the kind of satire and misunderstandings, the character who is a con artist, basically who's misrepresenting his role in the world though. Iban is only doing that to more guy because there's no sense that they really come in conflict with everybody, but it it is that kind of Kipling-esque satire of the adventure genre where all of the tropes are there, the exploring new territories, encountering strange people, cannibalism, um, difficult terrain, alien flora and fauna, strange gods, mystical powers, but it's, done in the same sort of con artisty vein that the man who would be king is done in. And so that's where I see the real overlap there is that this is maybe Clark Ashton Smith using a, a type of story prompt from the man who would be king and trying to turn it into a weird fiction story. Do you think that that's all that Smith is doing with this is that, that he's, he, he knows Kipling, he knows other works in this genre and says, what if I set that in, in space, in a, in a truly strange environment, and just retold the story? Or is he also concerned about the, the world of the 1920s and the 1930s, in fact, the, the America of the 1920s and 1930s here? Or is there not a lot of substance, not a lot of meat on the bones? Well, I think he is looking at you know sci- the rise of scientism and eugenics in the 1920s and 30s as a, as a main concern we see with the blamphoemes literally people who have lost their heads over their uh who have evolved to lose their heads over a certain period of time due to their loss of tradition religion mysticism maybe spirituality and what that has turned them into their heads are literally in their stomachs alone and there's a real emphasis on maybe excess and gluttony or something like that where that's all people are reduced to is surviving in some way yeah it does seem like he's concerned here with a a lack of interest in culture right that these people have no interest in any kind of learning any kind of art or or ceremonies all of that is gone and so there's no need for their heads anymore and that does seem to be a pretty on-the-nose kind of metaphor for the, the world that Smith is seeing around him. And this is actually something that comes up in the, the letter that he writes to Lovecraft about this story as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I do see that he's trying to update some of these tropes or maybe play with them. But because the story is set in, in a weird pre-Ice Age time, the opening is caught up with esoteric secrets and old gods he he doesn't direct the reader's focus to the right places if he is trying to make a point on 
culture or make a satire. I mean, there's nothing satirical about Zothakwa or Yunda, which is what the wizards worship. And if worship is a part of culture, which it is, I mean, I think, you know, even it's undeniable that that what we consider worthy is what makes our culture our culture that you can't he can't have it both ways in calling out a culture that has ceased to worship the right things or value the right things that create meaningful culture tradition um sublime experiences whatever it is and satirize the two worshipers of the old God. So it's just, it's, it's challenging to overcome. He really set up too many problems for himself at the beginning of the story to overcome. If what he wanted to do was a sort of Kipling esque riff on uh, con artist travelers in foreign lands. Well, part of the problem with this as a a satire or as as a critique of our world is that it's two steps removed from our world, not one, right? When a science fiction writer wants to do this, we have people from our world go visit another one. I mean, that's what Star Trek does, right? More or less. But here we've got characters who are already in a fantasy world that is distinct from our own world, who are then going to another world that is distinct from their world. And, And Smith has to build all of that in just 15 pages and it's just not clear which societies we're supposed to be looking at are we supposed to be looking at the hyperborean society and thinking about what that can tell us about our our own society or is it saturn we're supposed to be looking at but we're only seeing saturn through the eyes of this other fantasy culture to begin with so which is it it's just it's too many it's too many layers right so you don't write a social critique don't write a social commentary or a, you know a social satire that way right it can't be an onion it's just got to be two layers that's it right that's absolutely right and he just struggles so much you can tell because of how belabored the prose is and how drawn out it is that it reads like each word was a struggle to write and if you've tried writing a story that just doesn't work the prose turns out like this it reads as kind of tortured and belabored because it's you're not telling the right story. And you kind of sometimes don't realize that until after the fact. I'm sure, you know, for all of us who have have attempted writing, that you write one thing that you think is the story and you go back and realize you accidentally wrote another story and you have to just, you have to deconstruct it and start again. You can't keep going with two wrong stories. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we have wandered here into the the second thing I want to do with this story, which is to put on a kind of writing clinic. I, I had real fond memories of reading this story when I was a freshman in high school, but I do not think it has held up to that memory at all. In fact, I know it has not. It has not held up to that memory. It's a pretty bad story. And it certainly pales in comparison with The Planet of the Dead, which we both really quite liked. And we're not alone in this assessment. Smith had this story rejected a lot before it was bought for Strange Tales, which was a brand new magazine and just needed stories. It just needed to buy anything it could get. And Smith was a a big name. So even a bad story by Smith, you put his name on the cover, it's going to sell some issues of the magazine, which is all you're trying to do when you're a new new publication. But I think, you know, since we're trying to be writers too, I think let's use this opportunity to conduct a little writing clinic. Let's do some story doctoring. And I I want to start by asking some questions about the the purpose or the utility of some of the features of the, the plot and the character motivation. And just the first question I've got here as we try to kind of pull this apart is, what is Ibon's motivation in carrying this message to you know the, the two different populations on Saturn, right? He's, he's not threatened by this other god. He's not promised anything, any kind of, like any kind of reward by this other god. So why does he go on this mission rather than, say, immediately start looking for a way home? It's a real problem in this story to have Iban motivated purely by his desire to escape Morgai. We learn in the first chapter that Iban's tower is like way out. It takes them like they have to march through the night to get there by dawn. It's far away. He doesn't really seem to be doing any harm to anybody. He's just weirdly worshiping this old god, Zothakwa. There doesn't seem to be any weird sacrifices involved. It's just about esoteric and profane knowledge. It's about knowledge. And we know that Morgai's tactics are awful. He tortures the servants for half an hour with 
the hot tar and Ibon doesn't want to be in the cell. But once they get to Saturn and they're both there, it's not clear to me what he's trying to accomplish. So I know that he's still trying to escape Morgai. He said, Morgai, we can have a sword fight here if you want, or we can go on this mission. And so maybe the whole thing is just a lie that gets away from him. And that's his whole motivation. But after like spending a week on the road with Morgai or two months in Blemfoim, maybe he'd say like, hey, th- this whole thing, th- I was lying. I was lying the whole time. We're stuck here, man. Let's just make the best of it. <laughs> like he never, he's never, and that, that really hurts their relationship in the story. There's no camaraderie built because they never have a moment of reckoning. Um, the closest you see to their camaraderie is when Iban uh, tells Morgai, who has somehow retained his same like weight and exhaustion and like physical maladies when they're climbing over the mountain to go to the Yadims that like, hey, that national mother is going to get you if you don't keep moving. So he's like using threats as a goad. But I, I just, I don't know. His motivation is that he's a he's a con artist and and a bad character and he never comes clean but beyond that i don't really see why he's insisting on carrying this lie i don't think he really believes anything that he's saying and so it's a it's a real problem for the character yeah i don't think this is a character who has any motivation or any agency actually in the story at all i mean you you had questioned whether or not ibon is even the protagonist or if there is a protagonist i don't think there is a protagonist in this story ibon is supposed to be it i think smith thinks that there is one i think he thinks that ibon is a protagonist but he's clearly not because he is not a character who is trying to accomplish anything he has no goals no objectives of his of his own and it's not even like you know indiana jones and the raiders of the lost ark right where nothing he does actually matters right famously but he still actually has goals of his own that he's trying to accomplish has agency he's being active in the world not just reactive ibon here is being reactive in really even the most passive way you possibly can be and it does not work we're not invested in him we're not invested in what he's trying to accomplish at all And there's also no function for Morgai to be on Saturn either, right? We don't actually need him to follow Ibon through the door. We could just follow the adventures of Ibon ourselves, right, as the readers. We don't need this other character. And I think actually having him there gunks up the whole question of his motivation, right? It's just too many characters and too narrow of a pipe. Right. It's like what I said before. We have too many characters who are performing the same function on the story. We don't need two point of view characters exploring Saturn for us, especially if companionship isn't even the function of having somebody else along. I mean, you know, in the adventure fiction stories, like the desert Island stories, there's like a monkey or something like that, because it's, if you're exploring isolation and loneliness, you can't have another human being, which this story isn't doing. If you're exploring friendship, you might need another person or like a monkey or a dog or something like that. Uh, but that's not even what more guys doing here. He literally has no purpose the same way the original old God has no purpose. Like how much more meaningful would it be if instead of saying goodbye to Zothakwa, which I think is the weirdest bit of this whole story, Zothakwa who can travel through dimensions and space and time and all this stuff that, Zothakwa accompanies Iban to Saturn and then gives him like a a mission instead of this old god that it performs the same function as Zothakwa. Why do we need two of these Zothakwa-like gods in this story? It's another big indicator that Smith really lost his way in writing this story. He doesn't know what tale he's telling. Right. There are a number of different ways that Ibon could have been motivated to get to Saturn or or just gotten to Saturn at all, right? I don't think we need this prologue at all that builds the first world of two strange worlds that we're going to have and sets up this whole thing with Morgai, which we only need if the story is going to be about how they come together and put aside their, their differences and then return and reshape the world because of that. If that's not going to happen, there's no need for Morgai. But yeah, Ibon could have gotten to Saturn because he's sent through the door to Saturn by Zothakwa for any number of reasons, the simplest of which seems to be 
that although Zathakwa has this door to Saturn, he's too bloated to fit through it, so he needs Ibon to, to go and do whatever it is that's going to happen on Saturn. That seems like the easiest solution there. But... Also, this could just be something Ibon discovers while his, he's doing his research. We don't actually need Zothakwa in this story at all. Ibon's just doing sorcery science stuff because he's a science sorcerer dude and uh, figures out a way to get to Saturn and just like, wow, yeah, if you, I think if you can go to another planet, you should go even if you don't know if you can come back. Or maybe it's something that happens to him accidentally. Then he's super motivated once he's there to figure out how to get back because, um, I don't know, maybe uh, he needs to feed his cats or something like that. Like anything, right, could have motivated him. Totally. And I would have Zothakwa still on Saturn if we're keeping Ibon in research mode and he un covers this you know panel in the back of the wardrobe that takes him to saturn or whatever <laughs> that you keep sothakwa on saturn because sothakwa can travel these interplanetary distances he has this magic he can do it and he can get ibon back home and if you want to do a satire or a comedy story you could still have ibon be pursued by these other agents by agents of the other gods and you can have him come back home right at the time when they arrest him. And that could be the end of the story. If you want to tell a joke, tell that joke maybe. But the rest of these jokes don't quite work for me in this story. It's a strange comedy. Yeah, I think you're, you're now pitching The Door to Saturn Part 2, which uh, maybe we should actually write. The Saturning. Oh, yeah, you've nailed it. I mean, now it just writes itself. I think this is what we're doing with the rest of the week. Yeah. All right, so let's let's talk about prose here a little bit, right? We've I think we've dissected the plot and the, the characters uh, an, enough here, but let's talk about the the sentence level writing of this. So, you know, this story did not work for us, but Smith was really proud of it. Uh, he says that he liked the tone of the story, and this was a, in a letter that he wrote to Lovecraft about how many rejections the story had gotten, and I think it's worth talking uh, about this this letter. So, let me just read the the, the pertinent passage to you. Smith writes to Lovecraft, he says, The style, or lack of it, required by nearly all magazine editors, would call for a separate treatise. The idea seems to be that everything should be phrased in a manner that will obviate mental effort on the part of the lowest-grade moron. I was told the other day that my door to Saturn could be read only with a dictionary. Also, that I would sell more stories if I were to simplify my vocabulary. So this is an interesting comment for us as the hosts of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Last time we covered a Smith story, The Planet of the Dead, we talked explicitly about how Gene Wolfe loves Clark Ashton Smith, and especially the book of The New Sun is a real inheritor of Clark Ashton Smith, um, among other things. And Gene Wolfe has edited a volume of uh, Clark Ashton Smith stories. This one's not in it because he only picked the good ones. But people have made this same comment about the Book of the New Sun as well, that the language is difficult, that you need a dictionary to read it. But the Book of the New Sun is an absolute masterpiece. The prose is beautiful. It's gorgeous. It is a rich style of writing that you can just fall into. This is not, right? So where does this go wrong? Where does Smith go wrong with the wordsmithing here? I was listening to another podcast called 372 Pages We'll Never Get Back, which is hosted by Mike Nelson, who did Mystery Science Theater 3000. He was the second host. Now he does Rift Tracks and somebody else. And they, they were covering a, a particularly bad fantasy story called The Eye of Argon, which is a novella that is hugely inspired by Conan stories, Robert E. Howard, probably Clark Ashton Smith and Lovecraft, the big three of the, the Weird Tales writers. And I was reading up on it because it was just – it's funny – uh, when you come across bad prose, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not. But one reviewer said that the the writer of that had the talent of picking precisely the wrong word and then misapplying it <laughs> <laughs> to the sentence, which creates its own sort of you know humor. You can see the ideas there and what's behind them, but it's just the, the technique, the talent is just not there to to make it work. This story, I can understand having, you know, like a story baby that you just love and it's just never going to work. But to purposefully try to create a barrier between your story and the reader that doesn't serve the plot or the story reads like you're purposefully picking the wrong words and then misapplying them, which is which is what this story feels like none of the language flows naturally and for clark ashton smith who is a poet to write this really 
deeply unpoetic phrase. Like the sentences just don't even flow. They're hard to read. The languages, the alien languages are guttural and hard to speak or unspeakable entirely. The names like Iban and Morgai, they're just everything feels like the wrong choice on some level. And and it and I said that prose feels tortured and belabored because it feels like he is forcing each word on the page and nothing is coming naturally. And maybe that maybe that sense of conflict he himself had writing the story uh, to try to make it difficult gave him a false sense of love for it. The same way sometimes you have a fight with somebody and you like them more afterwards or something like that. <laughs> uh, but it's just that it's a very strange story. And the prose is just, it's fundamentally broken. You know, even, even when I was writing the recap, I just was like, why couldn't I could, you could just write better sentences than any of these and clean up the story and make it at least the ideas stand out. But because the prose is so clunky, the ideas of the story aren't even clear to the reader. Yeah, the prose is is just clunky, right? Every sentence has is too many clauses, and there's also just too much explaining, right? The, the world building here is a, a real problem, but part of the problem with the world building is simply the prose style it, itself, the, the tone that the piece takes. There are a lot of relative clauses in, in all the sentences, and, and in fact, we can see this right away. And, and I think it actually might be instructive for us to just dissect the first paragraph of this story, right? Where we see, we're going to see a lot of these problems. So I'll, I'll just read it into the microphone here and then we can, we can go through it a little bit. When Morgai, the high priest of the goddess Yunda, together with 12 of his most ferocious and efficient underlings, came at morning twilight to seek the infamous heretic Iban in his house of black nice on a headland above the northern main, they were surprised as well as disappointed to find him absent. Their surprise was due to the fact that they had fully thought to take him unaware, for all their tribunals against Ibon had been carried on with meticulous privacy and underground vaults with soundproof bolted doors, and they themselves had made the long journey to his house in a single night, immediately following the hour of his condemnation. They were disappointed because the formidable writ of arrest, with symbolic flame-etched runes on a scroll of human skin, was now useless, and because there seemed to be no early prospect of trying out the ingenious agonies, the intricately harrowing ordeals which they had devised for Ibon with such providential forethought. So, this is actually not the worst paragraph in the story, but because it's the first one, I think it's probably the most useful to go through. The first sentence of this story has a relative clause in it that explains to us who the point of view character is right which is in this place more guy if you have to have a relative clause in the first sentence of your story you're, you're doing something wrong right immediately two words into this story the on the third word of this story the reader is sucked out of your first sentence yeah it that's absolutely true and i just want to say on a on a kind of a more structural note of this paragraph everything that you read is three sentences this first paragraph is only three sentences. Yes, it has more semicolons than sentences. Right. And that's a huge, huge problem because you're putting too much information into each sentence that you're not even clear what the idea is of the paragraph. So we learned that Morgai is the point of view character here. We learned that he's trying to get Iban. That's two ideas. We learned that he's a high priest of the goddess Yunda. That's three ideas. We learned way too much about Iban's house. That's four ideas. And then we learn about the feelings of Morgai and his companion. So you have five ideas in one sentence. And then the rest of the paragraph only takes up the last idea that the first sentence discusses, the surprise and disappointment. So each sentence after that only is loaded with too much information, but is trying to simply deliver on the first sentence of the story. It's an absolute nightmare. It's painful to read. I got actively angry as I was reading this story, the deeper I got into it. <laughs> and, and Smith uses this trick that you've loved to point out that Robert E. Howard uses all the time, which is to, to pair two things together, often kind of opposites or things that 
that don't naturally go together and, and juxtapose them and to give a little quippy ex- explanation of that, that that is meant to be funny, right? A, a little quippy. Smith is trying that here with this. They were surprised and disappointed and then wanting to explain what, what was the source of the surprise and then what was the source of the disappointment. But this only works if it is a quip. But a quip is not something that takes up half a page. A quip is something that takes up maybe three lines at the most, preferably two lines, right? And so it's not even funny. By the time you get to the end of the joke, you have forgotten the beginning of the joke. You've forgotten the premise of it to begin with. But you can see where Smith was laughing about this the whole time he's writing. He thinks he's being quite funny here. Uh, I don't know that he wrote to Robert E. Howard about this story either, but we can envision what that letter would be like where he's saying, I'm using your technique here and made a very funny joke. But he... He hasn't. It does not. It does not work well. There's just a hundred other ways I would try. I would try to rewrite this paragraph, and like I said, it's just it's just Smith really working with way too many ideas, and that's what this story. That's the really core problem of this story. Smith, the, this story is bloated with ideas, and Smith does not know, and does not want to cut any of them out. He wants it all in here. He wants his humor and his riff on Kipling and he wants his interdimensional space travel and he wants his old gods and he wants his ancient continent and he wants Saturn and he should probably cut half of everything out of this story. He should cut Morgai or Iban. He should cut Zothakwa or the other god. He should cut Mutulan, Muthulan or Saturn. He should cut the Blemphoemes or the Udemes. He should <laughs> just everything is doubled and painful as a result because this plot doesn't even go anywhere because it's, as you pointed out, unmotivated. And I, I have to say, I really empathize with Clark Ashton Smith's dilemma here, right? It's very clear that he's building this world while he's writing this story. He's imagining and, and taking a lot of joy out of creating this world, which is probably why he thinks it's such a good story is because he had fun with the ideas of it, right? While he's out for a walk around his neighborhood in California, he's thinking up two worlds, Saturn and Hyperborea here, Muthulan, and getting a lot of joy out of that, coming home, maybe making a cup of coffee and, and setting to work. The problem is that none of that is the story, right? But I have this problem too. I love to build worlds, and in a 15-page story, will I'll end up, you know, a month later after I've let the story sit for a little while, go read it again, and realize that eight of the 15 pages are world building, and only eight of the story, eight of the pages are actually the story, and that that's not proportionally correct, right? And that's a real problem with this story, and that is really probably fundamentally where the difference between Gene Wolfe and Clark Ashton Smith lies, is that Wolfe is the master of building a world in a single sentence. He doesn't need eight pages, he doesn't need 50% of a story to do that, or, or want them, right? And it might just be that Wolfe was better at editing himself than Smith was, and maybe also, you know, you have to be better editing yourself in the 70s than you did here in the the 30s when television was still magazines and you could you could just crank these things out but then you know of course part of the problem is not just that he's doing too much world building but the fact that he's trying to pack all this world building in such a tight story means that he's cutting corners on the wordsmithing at the sentence level as well so if we were to take a look at the percentage of these sentences that are in passive voice it would be extremely high and that subconsciously for a reader again is something that draws you out of the story because a story is about people doing things people trying to achieve achieve goals, people trying to overcome obstacles. It's about being active. And if your story is mostly written in the passive voice, it's not active. Right. I think you just nailed what is wrong with this story. And I, I also empathize with Clark Ashton Smith. A lot of my stories that I start writing, I I go down the path of thinking I'm telling one story, realizing I don't really know how to execute it, telling another story, and then having to shave so much off to get some sort of real narrative out of it because part of the fun and the joy of writing is exploring ideas and putting your character in situations and seeing one seeing what ones stick and what ones don't but you have to get to the point where you realize like you can't you can't put it all in the same story create a series of stories for a character write a novel but a story can really only be about one thing, as, as Gene Wolfe said, and this story is just about too many things. Absolutely. That's it, right? Hitting the nail on the head is Gene Wolfe's own advice. A story has to be about one thing. If it's going to be about more than one thing, then you've got to write a novel. And there's a novel's worth of ideas here. He could have spun this out to be a, a pretty good uh, you know, space adventure 
novel that you know would rival Edgar Rice Burroughs's uh, you know for Princess of, of Mars, for example, which is it's kind of the same story in some sense too. Right. I mean, it, it is perfectly situated to become a Swiftian satire as well, and you can see why Wolf loves Clark Ashton Smith because Wolf is using that sort of Kipling esque imagery, the Swiftian satire, and and all of these tools that. Clark Ashton Smith kind of put in the toolbox of weird fiction and and horror and science fiction for the right practitioner to come and then make something great out of. Well, it's a shame that this one is a real clunker of a story, but you know, Clark Ashton Smith is still batting 500 here on the show, which is a, a, pretty, a pretty good batting average. I mean, he's doing better than Sheridan Le Fanu, who right, hasn't gotten a, a hit yet. I don't know why I'm suddenly speaking in baseball metaphors. I guess it's close to uh, I guess it's close to the afternoon on a Saturday <laughs> at the end of baseball season here. Yeah, well, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Don't forget to go and check out An Idle Dream Quite Gone Now again. This is the Flame Tree Press edition. You can find it at Barnes & Noble. It's in a lot of them. You can order it on Amazon. Please go and uh, get this book and support Glenn and the podcast. And while you're on the internet, you might as well head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of The Door to Saturn. Tell us you loved the story and why we're wrong about it and why we've read it wrong. Sympathize with our difficult re- uh, reading experience <laughs> of it as well. We'd love to hear from you. Next time, we'll be back with The Sphinx by Edgar Allan Poe. I'm very excited about this story. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>